1: It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. Joining me on the show today is my guest, Ron Hubscher, Ron is managing director of the Sales Optimization Group and author of a good book titled "Closing Time: The Seven Immutable Laws of Sales Negotiation." Ron, welcome to Accelerate.
2: Oh, thank you, Andy. I'm really delighted to be a guest on your show, and thank you. I really, I'm really grateful, and to all your listeners as well.
1: Well, a pleasure to have you on the show. So, take a minute, introduce yourself, and maybe tell us how you got your start in sales.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm Ron Hubsher. I run a company called the Sales Optimization Group, and we help world-class companies, typically in the Fortune 500. Um, already with the best of the best accelerate their sales by putting best practices into their sales organization. And the way I got my start in sales was uh, I started a business. And uh, I have an engineering degree. by And by training, I'm an engineer. And I always thought that you know there's a best practice and the best way to sort of manufacture a sale. And uh, so when I was younger, I read every virtually every sales book I could get my hands on and try to figure out what were the best practices so you consistently and in a repeatable process Manufacture sales with
1: consistent results. So, were you a manufacturing engineer?
2: Uh, No, just a regular old engineer. Um, Not particularly manufacturing, but I always thought there's sort of process and discipline and best practices and everything that can be done.
1: So, that's oftentimes a metaphor that people use for sales as a manufacturing process, that there's inputs, which, you know, form of leads and so on, outputs and forms of orders, and the process in between is, you know, the manufacturing process. Do you subscribe to that point of view?
2: I, I really do, and it, it's kind of interesting, you know, when, when you look at a manufacturing process, and we work with some manufacturers, but we do a lot more with uh, business services and a whole bunch of other companies like software and technology. But, like, if you want to manufacture a good product, you gotta start with the right raw materials. And if you don't have the right raw materials, um, you're just not gonna get a great product. And that starts with qualifying your leads, and this is something I know you talk a lot about, Andy, uh, working with the great, great qualified leads. So, a lot of people, you know, if someone can fog a mirror, and their pipeline is kind of small, they'll pursue that opportunity. And um, if they're not really in your sweet spot, you're not going to get a high efficiency or the likelihood of manufacturing a quality sales is low. So you really want to start with qualifying leads and identifying you know, who we call an ideal sales fingerprint. So you could fingerprint people and see you know, this is exactly the kind of people who tend to buy our products and not our competitors. Mm-hmm. Start with that as your, first, as your first step in the process. And then, as you walk down the process, you want to make sure you're going to have a great, long-term, profitable relationship. So there are various stages and steps along the way.
1: So, yeah, one of the things that, that manufacturers are concerned about are, or is, excuse me, is productivity.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, this is really a sort of a fuzzy area, you know, in sales is what 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 constitutes sales productivity? Because I, I certainly understand what sales performance is. But yeah, you, know, you look at productivity in the classic sense of you know a, a unit of output measured you know against you know the unit of input, right? So if you you know for an hour of labor, I produce you know X amount of goods. What's the equivalent in sales? So
2: I think there's a there's a couple of things. I think if you most, ask most VPs of sales, they'll say quota achievement, uh, and that's two ways. That's the percentage of quota and the number of folks hitting that quota. Um, so if you hit 100% of quota and 100% of your folks were at that 100%, that's probably the most goodness. Uh, we know through the 80-20 rule that uh, many people don't hit their quota and many people overperform. And then if you're lucky or if you're, you're okay, through that average, you'll hit your quota. Um, so I think there's really two key dimensions to that. So it's sort of quota achievement, or a VP of sales would measure it that way, uh, quota achievement, and then, then the number of people uh, percentage of people making that quota achievement. There's also various um, measures. You know, uh, it's actually one of the things that we always talk about is, you know, we're always taught in sales about the sales funnel, right? So there's a lot of stuff that comes in the top, mm-hmm. much smaller amount that comes out the bottom. And if you're actually really th- thorough about what you're thinking about, we always talk about flipping your sales funnel, so that you can start with a smaller amount of materials and end up with larger deals. So in your typical sales funnel. There are some deals that you, know, you shouldn't even be working on. Like, these are just bad investments. And if we weed those out earlier on, uh, we'd be much better off. There are other deals where this is dialed in for, uh, This is, deal is dialed in for us. This is one we should win. And if we don't win, it's something we've done wrong. And then there are other deals where if we do work them, we could probably win them. And it's sort of allocating your time, eliminating the ones where you have no chance and be a waste of time, turning those uh, questionable deals into winnable deals. And turning those, you know, ones that are dialed into you, um, making sure you win them and expand them, so that you can actually have a smaller amount of inputs in the top and greater inputs that come out the bottom. Does, does that make sense, sense, Andy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think somebody wrote a book about that called "Flipping the Funnel," which I I think was sort about that concept. So, so um, you know, in that case, though, because one of the things that again is more prevalent these days that you see is is metrics like percentage of pipeline coverage right? So, you know, my pipeline needs to be 400% of my quota for, for the month if you're a sales manager. But it, that seems to sort of go against what you were just talking about with flip the funnel, which, you know, it's a focus. And this is problematic. I see it in many cases where managers sort of have these perverse set of incentives that encourage them to have more pipeline when, as you pointed out, maybe especially in the complex sale, you're better off with fewer prospects that you can really appropriately exploit
2: right I and mean, it's, it's actually interesting because uh, you know there's there's nothing wrong per se with knowing what your what your phone numbers have to be so if you close 25 percent of your your deals your phone has to be 4x which is a great sort of starting point but you can get a little more precise you know there's there's a certain sort of version 2.0 on that uh... and let me give you a great example and this is a manufacturing example we work with a, a paper company uh... they they were founded in 1924 and they've been making paper the exact same way uh... since 1924 so i think uh... They're about uh, 92 years old. And there's actually recipes to make paper. And uh, to make a piece of paper, there's 14 attributes, roughly. Um, And that'll define any any piece of paper, whether it's width, uh, basis weight, uh, the fluorocarbons that go into it, all those kinds of things. Uh, And then there's a guide that tells you, hey, I'm looking for this type of paper. And these come in huge rolls, by the way. Um, So I'm looking for this type of paper. You know, here are the five companies that manufacture it, and could be the most commoditized product if you let it be. Um, so, it, 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 it's it's actually really interesting. Um, so, companies will call up and say, "Hey, I need this type of paper." They'll they'll go through this guide. They'll look at the top three or four com- companies and have them bid vers- bid versus each other. And what we always talk about is companies don't buy price; companies buy risk. And if in your sales process you can show you the least risky solution. Then you've earned the right to command a price premium. And um, the people who buy large rolls of papers are typically called converters. And converters will take that piece of paper, uh, they'll print uh, a name on it, and maybe they'll chop it up. So this particular company um, sold if you ever, ever walk into one of your favorite fast food restaurants, that sandwich comes wrapped in a piece of paper.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? And you know, typically that piece of paper, it actually has a little bit of a wax coating on it um, and it's cut into one inch squares, you know, or one, I'm sorry, one foot squares. So what will happen is the paper manufacturer will say, Hey, I need, you know, this number of tons of this type of paper, and it's going to be used to produce, you know, wrap for sandwiches. Um, and so the converter will take that piece of paper, you know, chop it into one inch squares, print, you know, this, this burger type brand on it and then ship it out with this, uh, this, this hero shop brand and, and ship it out. So you want to understand, uh, what the risk point is for that company. So the risk point isn't necessarily the piece of paper. It's the fact that when you ship that paper, if that paper breaks on the production of lines, that's tens of thousands of dollars of downtime, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or that wax buildup uh, and this actually happens as, as the paper is going through the machine, that wax buildup you know, causes that machine downtime. Again, that's tens of thousands of dollars. So you really want to look at who's price sensitive to that so is this decision being made by the procurement team or is it being made by the operational team? So you can start weeding out your prospects. Who's going to make the final decision uh, that way? And you can actually, it's really interesting. So this is a, a case study that we we did with one of our clients. This was a, by a company that was bought by a private equity firm. Um, they had about 1,500 prospects in the entire world that they could sell to. Right. Uh, we went through, so it's a finite universe. We went through and ranked and scored each one of their prospects based on what's an ideal sales fingerprint for us? Mm-hmm. Right? Who's likely to buy, uh, buy from us on a long-term basis? Oh, these guys are only price shoppers, not for us. Oh, these people, they understand the value of having a perfectly, uh, a perfect roll of paper. Uh, and there are a few other attributes. So we could rank everybody uh, in our prospect database. And I would recommend anybody do this in their pipeline, right? So you can rank your prospect according to an ideal sales fingerprint. And there's also unacceptable unacceptable. Uh, client profiles. So there's two metrics. So if, 91, if someone's 90% ideal and and it doesn't, you know, and, and 0% unacceptable, well, that's an opportunity you should pursue and pursue with rigor. Um, and if you don't win it, it's probably something you've done and done not well. There are other folks who are sort of, you know, 10% ideal and have 50% of the, you know, the the red flag profile or the unacceptable customer profile. And those are people you want to get out of your pipeline quickly. So uh, we're working with this one customer, Uh, over the the 80 years, I forgot the exact number of customers. I think they had about 150 customers. Um, In one year's time, we took them up to 225 customers. And they grew sales 22% in their first year and another 8% filled up their mill in their second year just by using that simple technique of saying, let's rank and score people in our profile. So that's the kind of dramatic things that you can do. And uh, for for people who know anything about the paper business, um, it's really a, a negative growth industry. So the, the paper industry grows about 2%, 2% a year, and if you actually factor on in inflation and things like that, it's a negative growth industry. So that's sort of an example, a real-world example of a sort of, you can't get any more old line than paper manufacturing, but by just by putting sales discipline and process in place, um, you can make tremendous results. And there, it wasn't a question of, yeah, I need more pipeline. It's I need more quality folks. Um, and that's always a good a good second screen. So typically you, know, you need 3x or 4x your quota to be in your pipeline, but if you really scratch it away, you can be. Uh, you need less than that, but you need the right type, because you can have five or six x of really bad folk, and it doesn't matter. Or you can have three x, and you'll you'll more than make your your quota.
1: Now, in those cases, were you finding that that the ultimate deal sizes that they were getting were larger?
2: Absolutely, because people understood the value that they that that they were delivering. And they would get, in, in some businesses, it's winner-take-all. In some businesses, it's, you get a, a piece of the pie. Um, so in, in sort of dual source or tri-source businesses, you end up getting 90% of the pie, right? And in single-source businesses, you get 100% of the pie. Um, and people are ordering more materials, and then they get more customers. So that one converter who sold sandwich wraps to chain X, Y, and Z, they added on other chains due to the quality of their success. So, that goes back to the manufacturer or the paper who ends up getting bigger and bigger orders. So, you're helping your customers be successful as well.
1: But interestingly, you're describing a situation that, that you had sort of less coverage in the pipeline.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You were closing a higher fraction of the deals, and the deals that you closed were larger. Right. So, you know, if you, to me, if you take that back and, and look at that from sort of a manufacturing point of view, right? Because your paper company client right there. I would I would imagine that one of their key metrics that they were doing in manufacturing was you know footage of paper that they were producing per hour.
2: Correct. Something along
1: those lines, yes. All right. So why in sales don't we measure amount of revenue produced per hour by rep? Per hour meaning per hour of selling time.
2: Yeah, you, you could you could absolutely do that.
1: I, you know, well, but why don't, I, why don't people? Because to me, that's, that's, that's productivity. You described a situation where you actually were just increasing their productivity where I presume without adding any headcount and by being more targeted on the accounts you are selling to, you're closing a higher fraction, producing greater revenues. So obviously the amount of revenue produced by hour of selling time went up fairly substantially.
2: Correct. Absolutely. So
1: that's productivity. You know, to me, productivity has nothing to do with attaining quota. That's performance. What I want to know is, and what you know, I think is the great gap with with many sales leaders and most sales leaders is they don't understand this whole fraction about you know how many how many dollars of revenue is each rep producing per hour of sales time.
2: Right, and, and you know, and I, I understand if you're a VP of sales because that's not how you're measured. I mean, you know, um, I, I completely agree with you in improving productivity, but they're they're always measured by quota. So you know, by improving productivity, you're going to net net increase their increase one over performance of quota, and two the number of people hitting quota.
1: So um, and and you you then understand really what your true capacity is within the resources you have for attaining a certain revenue number.
2: Right, and you know if you actually think about how revenue numbers are assigned uh, or quotas typically assigned, it's sort of like we need to hit this this year. Right, here's the number we need to grow ten to fifteen percent. Right. So I'm going to give that to you, Mr. Mr. or Ms. VP of Sales. Ms. or Ms. VP of Sales is going to uh, uh, dish out that additional quota plus a markup. So just in case they don't make it, um, you know, the company still hits their quota. So they may assign, you know, plus 25% to their team and then they'll allocate it in different ways. Uh, And that's typically how it's assigned. It's sort of signed by this is what the business needs to do. As opposed to where can we improve productivity improvements? What are we, you know, what are we strategically doing to improve the productivity? It's you know, here's the number we got to hit because that's what we got to do. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with you, Andy.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, you didn't have to agree with me, but it's just it's just like this is a this is something I've talked about. People in the audience probably are tired of hearing me. Bring this up, maybe to some degree, but, but it, it to me, it's the next real frontier in terms of how we manage sales. See, I worked in a business, I had fortune when I was much younger in my career, and was managing sales teams, where I had the information because we worked in sort of defense business or part of the company's defense business, and we had to track everybody's time, including sales reps, by hour, what they're working on, with by project number, by time, but to the half hour increment. So I knew exactly.
2: And, 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 to to,
1: to sort of a half hour, how many sales hours required to close a million dollar deal?
2: Right, right. And you you know you know what's interesting. I, I always sort of say sales is the last undisciplined functional area, right? You know we can manufacture things to within a millimeter, um, but when you try to manufacture a, a sale, um, there's so much variance on it. And you can look at the same people selling the same products to the same customers. And one person can have a 50% close rate, and somebody can have a 10% close rate uh, on opportunities for sold. And same thing with discounting, right? Some The same people selling the same products to the same customers, one person will have a 50% discount rate, um, someone will have a 0% discount rate. Um, so, completely agree. Uh, there, there's a lot of upside potential when you put process and discipline into sales.
1: Oh yeah, and that, an upside in terms of generating more revenues with existing resources, absolutely. So, um, so let's let's talk a little bit about sales negotiation because this is you know you've written the book Closing Time: The Seven Immutable Laws of Sales Negotiation. Uh, I think it's sort of interesting. You know, so where does where does selling end and negotiation begin?
2: You know, and and that's a great uh, a great question. So um, to me, there's you know they're interrelated. They they start negotiation starts at the very first interaction and sometimes before the first interaction, and you always want to think about. Um, closing with the first interaction you have with the customer. Um, and um, I always think there's the overt negotiation and the covert negotiation. So the overt negotiation is, boy, we get down to this contract and we got terms and conditions, we got pricing, we got a whole bunch of stuff, right? I've, I put my thing on the table and now we're negotiating pricing terms, right? So that's sort of the overt negotiation. But everything you do before then is as, or much more important, as you go down the sales process so you really want to be thinking about your negotiation strategy as you go through your sales uh, strategy and what I always talk about is that there's two things you need to negotiate well the first is you have to put a superlative sales effort in Um, no amount of negotiation practice can make up for a poor sales effort but just because you put a strong sales effort in doesn't mean you'll negotiate well it creates the potential to negotiate well if you combine that with a strong negotiation plan you'll capitalize on that potential if you have a weaker non-existent plan you'll squander that potential. And, um, you know, if you if you put a poor sales effort in, there's no negotiation prowess. there's no magic abracadabra that I can tell you that'll make up for a poor sales effort. So two things for negotiation success are, one is you have to put a spur of sales effort in, and two, you have to have a negotiation plan.
1: Okay, so, uh, but you said that you just, negotiation starts at the beginning, so correct. I'm prospecting. Where am I negotiating?
2: Uh, you'll be negotiating through the entire sales process, but the, the biggest thing and one the single biggest mistake is that salespeople make especially in business to business sales is they're not sure that the buyers number one choice so in a business to business sale typically you'll be competing with two three four five other competitors it's a considered purchase right and you want to definitely ascertain and make yourself the number one choice and if you're not the number one choice you're really you're really negotiating to beat down the price of the real winner your competition so what you always want to do is sell to be the number one choice and if you're not the number one choice, don't negotiate because they're really using you to beat down, the, beat down the price of the real winner. And if you're the number one choice, you want to think about how you're going to command a price premium, how you're going to deliver even more value to that customer and make this deal even more profitable for you and more profitable for your client
1: or your prospect. So, but, so what's that look like? I mean, again, you know, you're a sales rep, you're at the beginning stages of, of just engaging and contacting, connecting with the prospect. So, tell the audience what that means relative to when you said you know negotiations sort of start at that, and that's that's that early in the deal what what are you saying to the customer or what are you actions are you taking that sort of exemplify that
2: right so you know there are things you're going to want to ascertain sort of that you're going to want to know you know um, you know what is the value of solving this problem to the customer what's going to happen if it doesn't get solved you know you're going to want to quantify and create an ROI or payback value for them you're going to want to talk about uh, the things that make you unique and help how you help lower that buyer's risk. And what we always talk about is companies don't buy price, companies buy risk. And if in your sales process you can show you the least risky solution, then you've earned the right to command a price premium. So you're going to want to understand their pain points, understand how you can lower their risk, what the value of a solution is going to look like, what the value of not implementing a solution is going to look like so you don't lose to no competition. You're going to want to know the buying process. You're going to want to know the personal agendas of each of the buying folks, if you can. Um, these are some of the basic things that you're going to want to know. You're going to want to know the decision-making process. You want to know any kind of compelling event that's going to happen. Um, and you're going to want to feel comfortable presenting a price premium to them later on at you know, at the end of the day.
1: Sure. Well, I think uh-huh. I, okay, so I think I, maybe I misunderstood what you said earlier. So What you just said made a lot of sense. So what we're going to focus on is we're going to focus on taking the actions that position us to negotiate from a position of strength. Correct. Absolutely. Okay, so make sure sell a superlative sales effort to make sure we are the number one choice. Mm-hmm. Um, reduce risk, which I I talk about in my first book as being absolutely essential to to selling. Um, you know, the other factors you brought up is is yeah, understanding their needs, their wants, the value they're going to receive. You know, doing the financial calculation, all that, if agreed to, and like I said as part by the prospect that I got the buy-in as you go through, then. Yeah, you set yourself up for, but again, negotiating for more from a position of strength.
2: Correct. Absolutely.
1: Okay. Got it. All makes sense. Good.
2: Right. Right. So you know, we we always talk about is everything that we teach complements a sales process they may have in place. You know, some companies have a well-defined sales process, though that's few and far between. Uh, most have a sort of loosely defined sales process um, these days. Um, so you know, it typically complements what they're already doing. Yeah, you know, there's nothing that I sort of mentioned there that would would be shocking or surprising to any seasoned
1: sales representative. So one thing that's again sort of back to an example I gave before that's that's sort of interesting. Get your perspective on this is as we see more more and more products, and even some of the clients that you mentioned, I know are making the shift to uh, products they previously sold, maybe as a capital expense, now are sold as as part of a service, mm-hmm. right? A subscription based service. It seems like that takes away some of that price negotiation.
2: Uh, when you say take, takes away the price negotiation, tell me more, Andy.
1: Well, I mean, if you're selling something for, you know, two hundred bucks a seat per month, as opposed to this is a million dollar thing that you're going to buy, you know, because a lot of the the contracts put together, it's like, hey, you know, press hard, three copies. Um, you know, this is a set price standard. You know, we don't have a lot of room for negotiation now that you know this is a service providing as opposed to you know, some capital expense. I mean, are you seeing some of that?
2: Um. So I, I think you know what I see in the B two B software as a service space is people still want the same discounts, and they want forty to fifty percent, and they're going to press you on that. Um, you know, if you have standard pricing, that's that's totally fine. I have no no problem with that. But you know, some if you look at some of the, the most notable software as a service names out there, they discount you know twenty thirty forty fifty percent all the time that's not unusual uh... and depending on the size of the deal um, you know even though it's delivered as software as a service it may be paid for differently so if you're working a really large deal you know it might be a multi-million dollar deal um, so that certainly doesn't change the way the application is delivered change but the the way you may pay for it may not be changed Might not may, may not be changed so they may want five years up front or, or a portion of it up and then for sort of, sort of smaller users you know your onesies, twosies. There may or may not be pricing flexibility, but certainly everyone's going to ask.
1: Well, how does the negotiation strategy change if you're selling an SaaS model versus you know the more, more conventional model that existed before for software?
2: You know, it, it's really interesting, Andy. It's sort of like um, every negotiation, sort of like every human being has the same amount of muscles and has the same number of bones. I think I forgot the, the number. I think it's 206 um, bones in your body or 86 muscles. Um, so whether you're, um, if you want someone who's left-handed and has a chapeau, you know, that, that infrastructure doesn't change. Um, so every negotiation goes through our seven same, the same seven steps. Just how you customize them and configure them um, um, will vary a little bit. Okay, but, so,
1: so briefly, what are those seven steps of sales negotiation?
2: Yeah, so the first is you have to be the buyer's number one choice as we sort of talked about before. And we talk about companies don't buy price, companies buy risk. And if in your sales process you can show you the least risky solution, then you've earned the right to command a price premium. And even if you're selling, you know, and, and what I always look for and what I try and scrub people from my pipeline, I want to get to the guy who has risk. And if someone doesn't have risk, they can be a commodity buyer. And I never want to sell to a commodity buyer. So if someone calls you up and the first thing they're asking about price is you've got to walk it back and talk about, well, what are your issues? What are you trying to accomplish? If someone doesn't feel risk, like, oh, hey, if I buy this software as a service as opposed to the other one, and it fails, I feel no pain. I never want to sell to that person, ever, because they're just going to go right to the bottom, right? So you always want to be the buyer's number one choice. You want to know the value you create. Uh, if you don't know the value you create, you're going to be left to defend price, and that's going to put you in a reactive and negative negotiation position. So, Andy, if I, if I talk to you about, let's say we're selling something $200 a month, and I know if this thing's going to bring you $10,000 worth of value, right, uh, each month, mm-hmm. I go, look, we can talk about, you know, whatever the number is, Andy, we can talk about whether, you know, you buy this for $100 or $200, you know, it's going to take us three months of negotiation to go back and forth over this. You know, it's going to take a lot of time. I'm going to have to to my VP. We're going to have to go through legal. We're going to have to do 18 different things. Um, by the time we get it solved, right, even if we were to give you $100 a month, and I'm not saying we will, and I don't know what we'd want back in return, whether it's complete payment up front, longer term commitment, we might want a whole bunch of other things, you're already losing out on $40,000. Is it worth losing out on $40,000 to save $100 a month? Right. So you always want to talk about the value you create. And that's one of the biggest mistakes people don't do, is they don't know the value you create, so they're left to defend price. Or, co-
1: or cost, right. Right, you're talking about
2: cost, and that can get down to zero pretty quickly. And there's always someone there who's willing to undercut you. Um, so you have to know the value you create. And actually, a lot of our clients uh, you know, a lot of our clients, when they start using our negotiation methodology they get really um, firm about talking about the value they create. So only about 5% of companies that we uh, that 5% of companies that we know of typically have an ROI calculator and less than that actually use it. Uh, and typically, when, when we work with them, that number is greatly increased. And you have to be able to, even if it's on the back of an envelope, you always have to talk about uh, value. And the way we talk about value to our customers is we talk about what a 5, 10, 15% reduction in discounting will do to your share price. So, for every client we do, we do a share price calculator that says, hey, if you reduce discounting by 5%, you can increase your share price by $40, right? Or wherever the number comes out, depending on that particular point. Um, so, um, you know we always practice what we preach, so you have to know the value you create, um, you have to be prepared to resist squeezes, um, you know know they're coming, look forward to them, uh, and in fact, be disappointed if someone doesn 't squeeze you right Anybody worth their salt's going to squeeze you in a business to business sales negotiation, so you want to be prepared to resist squeezes so,
1: um, so, so, so here 's a you know sort of a structural question for you because this is sure. this is something that that I see. I wouldn't say it's necessarily an increasing number of companies, but you see it from time to time. Certainly, it's an environment I worked in for a while, which was that, you know, once the negotiation really started, sales was no longer a part of that. You know, mm-hmm. those contracts or legal or somebody that was doing the negotiation. So, you know, what are you seeing out there? What do you recommend?
2: Yeah, and you want to know the decision making process up front. So, you know, when you're working with your economic buyer, whatever it is, you're going to want to be a team. You're going to go and want to ask them, you know, what obstacles can get in the way.
1: But the I mean, point was I saw it, it to me, and my experience has been, is yeah, it's, it's more of a serial process. I mean, companies, given the the tightness of resources, not to say they haven't, and I certainly have been in situations that this has happened, but it's very rare where companies are negotiating simultaneously with two competitors. I mean, uh, real contract negotiations, right. I mean, isn't that what you see? I mean, to me, it's like, gosh, decision gets made subject to a final contract, but they make a decision on one party and then move forward with one party, and if the negotiations don't work out, they'll go to the next one, but they won't invest the effort to go simultaneously. I mean, what what are you seeing in that regard?
2: Yeah, so there's always a backup, absolutely, but there's also always the number one choice. And you want to make sure you're that number one choice. And um, there's two parts to cereal. Um, one is with other companies and the other is within that company, right? So you're going to want to know, you know is this going to go through procurement? Is this going to go through legal? Of course, it's going to go through legal and procurement in many, most uh, large organizations. What are they going to be looking for? Uh, what do we need to get make them happy? And how can we bring them uh, on earlier on? So um, as you get into larger deal sizes, you talked about earlier, Andy um, you know, uh, if you're going to go through procurement, what are they gonna need? What are they gonna look for? How can we engage them? How can we make them look good? Um, and you're gonna wanna think about those things in advance so they're not going to, you're not gonna get it down to, hey, this, this deal is worth X or this number of dollars per user per month, and then they get to procurement, they're like, oh, you're gonna to have to reduce that 30%. Uh, and and everyone throws up their hands, well, it's procurement, you gotta just do that. You're gonna to wanna to really be proactive. And actually, that's a, one way of differentiating yourself during the sales process of understanding the decision-making process and all the parties involved and uh, knowing how you can create a competitive advantage. And if you're working with procurement and you're working with legal, and they're going seriously with another competitor, you can understand where you are in the decision-making process. So if you're getting access to their legal and you're getting access to procurement, you're probably you know, at a better position than that other company. And I also like asking my clients, you know, take price out of the issue. You know, if price weren't an issue, would we be your number one choice? Uh, why or why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that way I always want to differentiate what we're doing.
1: Okay. Perfect. Uh, now we get to the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask every guest. Uh, audience always <laughs> anxious to hear what people have to say with this one. So, uh, in this first question, it's a hypothetical scenario that you, Ron, have just been hired as a VP of sales at a company whose sales have hit a rough patch. They sort of stalled out, slumped a little bit. CEO is anxious to get things turned around and unstuck. So, your first week on the job, what two things would you do that could have the biggest impact? So
2: I think there's two things. Well, one you always want to assess the sales talent, and if it's an old team or an established team, um, you're going to want to assess, you know, what you got on your team and where, where you can help them improve. And then two, I want to make sure they're working on the best opportunity. So I create an ideal sales fingerprint and an unacceptable cl- client profile, and we scrub the pipeline. Uh-huh. Uh, so we see right away what we have working on and where we're going. So those are the two two biggest things that I would try and do is sort of assessing where we are and how we're going to get to where we go.
1: Okay. And you just won the award for answering that question the fastest. So um, I've, not, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, you've been there, right? So, okay. So, now some rapid-fire questions. You can give me one-word answers or elaborate if you wish. So, the first one is, when you, run or out selling your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute?
2: Uh, I think there's a couple things. Um, our biggest thing is our, our referenceable client base. Um, you know, we bring out some pretty heavy-hitting names. And it opens people's eyes. Um, so I think that's our, our biggest competitive advantage, too. I think our sales process is very thorough. Uh, and we, we walk the walk. So uh, a lot of times, when clients bring us in, they go, the reason we chose them is because they put the best sales effort in. Uh, and they really walk through everything they have in their book. Okay. Those are the, those are the two biggest uh,
1: attributes. Alright. Who's your sales role model?
2: Uh, sales role model Uh, Well, I have a couple people who I always call my my sales rock stars. Uh, Alston Gardner, who founded Taz. Mike Bosworth, uh, Solution Selling. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Bob Miller, Miller Hyman. Uh, Those are are my three big rock stars. And I got to speak and and meet all
1: three of those guys. Excellent. Okay. Uh, One book besides your own that every salesperson should read.
2: Uh, I would say Miller-Hyman Solution Selling or the original Mike Bosworth uh, I'm sorry, Mike Bosworth Solution Selling or the original, uh, both original Miller-Hyman Strategic Selling.
1: Okay. Yeah, Michael Bosworth, guest on the show previously. And um, last question, so what, what music's on your playlist these days?
2: Uh I'm stuck in the 90s and 80s, so U2 um, is probably my biggest one. And Will Hendrix thrown in, which would put me in the 60s as well.
1: Okay. U2 and Hendrix. Okay, that's 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 a good mix. I like that. Well, good. Well, Ron, thanks for being on the show. Uh tell folks how they can connect with you.
2: Uh you can connect with me at if you go to our website www.salesog as an optimization group or original gangster.com.
1: Uh, <laughs> I, I that gangster part, okay. It gives, gives you a different image of myself. Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs>
2: well, just send me an email at rhubsher, H U B is in boy, S H E R. So that's rhubsher, H U B as in boy, S H E R, at salesog.com.
1: Great. Well, good, Ron. Thanks again for being on the show. And remember, friends, thank you for taking the time to listen to Accelerate today. And remember, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is take a minute and subscribe to this podcast, Accelerate, and that way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Ron Hubscher, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me, and until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.
0: Hey sales strategists. At revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations. And after calls, we generate ready to send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at revenue.io.